I've always liked Texas. I've always loved playing here. I've played well here over the years. I couldn't be happier to be in Texas. I mean that very sincerely. Now, do you believe him? In December of 2000, in a move that shocked the baseball world, Alex Rodriguez ended up on the Texas Rangers. As the most anticipated free agent in baseball history, there had been all sorts of speculation about where he might end up. The Mets? The Dodgers? The White Sox? Instead, he'd ended up in Texas, on a team without much history or iconography. The Rangers had won exactly one playoff game in their entire 40-year history at that point. The most famous Rangers player in history was probably Nolan Ryan, who didn't join the team until he was 41 years old. Yeah, he's only a famous Ranger because of his iconic fight with Robin Ventura, which took place in a Rangers uniform. And they weren't even lovable losers. They were just a consistently mediocre team nobody ever paid much attention to. A-Rod had gone there simply because they had offered him the most money. And the backlash was immediate. The first people to express their displeasure were the other owners and executives, who were upset to miss out on A-Rod, but more than that, were alarmed at the kind of salaries players were now commanding. GMs around the league acted like it was Pearl Harbor. Kevin Towers, the GM of the San Diego Padres, said, It's a good day for the Texas Rangers, but it's a bad day for baseball. Billy Bean of the Oakland Athletics said, I'm numb to the whole thing, like a damn family member had died. But the most vocal opponent was Sandy Alderson, who was then working in the commissioner's office as a vice president for baseball operations. Really, just a fancy title for representing the owner's interests. In response to Rodriguez's contract, he did a mini press tour, telling everyone how bad it was for fans and for the game. This is a crisis situation, I really believe that, Alderson said. This contract will affect every team's ability to operate in this system. I've got a season ticket application on my desk at my home, and I've got to decide whether to pay for those tickets. And there are a lot of season ticket holders thinking the same thing right now. God, that guy, what a, what a piece of work Alderson was. Yeah. Makes uh, the question, does the commissioner's office not like comp tickets? Or... Yeah. <laughs> Ironically, the main issue these guys were raising was competitive balance. As Alderson put it, this is the kind of thing where people start to ask, gee, what am I buying? Does this team really have a shot here? It raises a lot of issues. And that's why I'm saying this is a crisis. This sort of goes beyond economics. This is about competition and whether fans believe they're going to receive a competitive event for the dollar they are paying. In other words, they were worried that Rodriguez would make the Rangers too good. Of course, in retrospect, we know that isn't something they had to worry about. And it's debatable to what extent competitive balance was ever really their concern. Certainly, some general managers, like Bean and Towers, must have known that they couldn't compete for big-time free agents with the budgets that their owners gave them. But for someone like Alderson, who wasn't representing a particular team, the real problem with Alex Rodriguez's contract was that more money was going to the players, and that meant less money for the owners. Alderson wasn't worried about the fans. He was worried about the bank accounts of his bosses. In fact, competitive balance has increased since free agency became the norm. And ever since Rodriguez's contract, no team has ever won back-to-back World Series titles, and 15 different franchises have won championships. That's half the league, which is a higher percentage and raw number than both the NFL and the NBA. Whether all that parity has been good or bad for baseball is a separate question, but concerns about competitive balance were at best misplaced. And at worst, they were just a cover story for their reaction against labor's growing power in baseball. And the face of that growing power was our hero, Alex Rodriguez. I'm John. 
I'm James. We're the Lefty Specialists. And this is the A-Rod Chronicles. Chapter 3, Champagne Problems. The owners didn't really have to work hard to put Rodriguez on the defensive after he signed his deal. $252 million is a lot of money, a frankly embarrassing amount for playing baseball. We've become a little desensitized to huge contracts for pro athletes, but at the time, it was still unusual, and so there was bound to be backlash from the fans. Kim and Monroe, you're on KJR. Andrew in the car phone. Every time there's a ground ball hitting his direction, you boo him before he even makes the play. And Boo the crap out of him. The guy's useless. I'm going to boo him tonight because I hate the guy. His ego is going to drive Texas into the ground. There were obvious questions about whether he was really worth it. As Steve Phillips, the Mets general manager, who just made a big to-do in public about dropping out of the A-Rod sweepstakes, said, when you pay one player a lot of money, you sometimes have to sacrifice in other areas. That's pretty weird, right? I mean, money is finite. I mean, there's, a, there, you know, the idea that a budget is fixed is not crazy. I mean, any, you know, business would say that. But I think the idea that labor's share is fixed and you can only pay one player more by paying another player less is obviously something owners are very invested in saying. Really, it's just people being a little skeeved out by the idea that a baseball player is making $25 million a year, right? Yeah, that's really the base level issue here is that $25 million is a a ton of money for any worker to make. And I think it's understandable for athletes to feel defensive or embarrassed about about that amount of money because, you know, you can always say like, oh, a teacher only makes $60,000 or a firefighter only makes whatever a firefighter salary is, you know, that people who do really important work in a baseball, you know, don't get paid as much. And then baseball is just a game or an ath- any athlete is just playing a sport and they don't really deserve that amount of money. Yeah. And meanwhile, the MLB owners are just putting in day after day of hard labor. to. <laughs> right. I think the important thing is to recognize that the, the goal is to make labor's share of the pie bigger at the expense of owners. But it's understandable why, why somebody like Alex would be, would be defensive about it. And that led to, to a frankly disastrous press tour that winter. First came A-Rod's interview on Dan Patrick's ESPN radio show just a few days after signing his contract with the Rangers. In the interview, he was asked about the record-setting contract he had just signed, and specifically whether that record would ever be broken. And A-Rod answered honestly, but not wisely. The 252 is going to be hard to break because of my age and my talent at such a young age, he said. He mentioned Pedro Martinez and Andrew Jones as potential candidates to break the record. But then he mentioned his friend Derek Jeter. Even a guy like Derek... It's going to be hard for him to break that because he just doesn't do the power numbers and defensively he doesn't do all those things. So he not he might not break the 252. He might get 180. I don't know what he's going to get. 150? I'm not sure. Of course, Alex wasn't wrong. I mean, he, it's never like he's fully wrong. In fact, when Jeter did ultimately sign a deal a few months later, he signed for $189 million, which was right around the number Rodriguez predicted for him but it was exceedingly bad form to call out another player, especially one he was ostensibly friends with, and especially one currently negotiating a contract as undeserving of the money you yourself are making. It was also strange for him to even be talking about a record-setting contract. Players aren't supposed to care about individual records, not even ones that are set on the field. They definitely aren't supposed to brag about records involving money and contracts. 
It didn't matter that Alex had been asked about it specifically. He was not supposed to answer such a question honestly. The New York Post accused him, not for the last time, of having a bad case of Derek envy. On the other hand, Derek Jeter, who always knew the right thing to say, responded beautifully. He dismissed Alex's comments by saying he didn't care about the contract record. The only record he had his eyes on was Yogi Berra's record of 10 World Series wins. Of course, Jeter wasn't playing for free, and he would, as I said, sign his own massive contract a few months later. But he knew you weren't supposed to brag about money, and in public you had to talk about team accomplishments. Again, it's very awkward to talk about your $25 million per year contract when you play a sport for a living. Privately, though, Jeter was pissed at Rodriguez's comments, and Alex seems to have realized he crossed the line. He apologized directly to Derek, and perhaps the whole thing could have blown over, but... Except that by the time this whole thing played out, A-Rod had already given an interview to Scott Rabb of Esquire magazine for a piece that would come out the following February, where he talked about Jeter again. And these comments were even more personal. Jeter's been blessed with great talent around him, so he's never had to lead. He doesn't have to, so he can just go and play and have fun and hit second. I mean, you know, hitting second is totally different than hitting third or fourth in a lineup because you go into New York trying to stop Bernie and O'Neill and everybody. You never say, don't let Derek beat you. That's never your concern. This was a more direct attack on Jeter. It wasn't just about money. It was about him as a player. A-Rod was puncturing the idea that Jeter was key to the Yankees' success. And you can sort of see where Alex is coming from. For one, the Yankees were better than the Mariners in the 90s. They had just won their fourth World Series in five years, and they did have a deep roster. There are a couple of things I also want to uh, note here. So first of all, uh, I want to point out A-Rod's keen baseball eye. He, of course, rightly mentions Bernie first enlisting other Yankees. <laughs> uh, and then secondly, uh, I do want to kind of acknowledge that uh, the Captain documentary, the Randy Wilkins series on Derek Jeter that aired on ESPN last year, that kind of has the order of the Esquire and the Dan Patrick interview flipped. Uh, so it makes it seem as though the Esquire magazine feature was published before the Dan Patrick interview. That's not quite what happened, but ultimately it doesn't really matter. It's mostly significant that these two things happened in rapid succession and made it seem like A-Rod could not stop talking about Jeter. Yeah, the timeline is a little confusing. The two interviews actually took place on the same day, December 19th. The Dan Patrick interview happened on the radio in the morning, and then Scott Rabb attended the Miami Heat game with Alex and Scott Boris later that night. But because radio was live and print media has a long lead time, the Esquire story didn't come out until March, which made it seem like A-Rod had been talking shit about Jeter for three months. The other thing about the Captain documentary, which is worth pointing out, is that documentary includes the audio that Rabb took of, of Rodriguez talking about Jeter, and his comments when you hear them sound much tamer than they read on the page. You know, it seems like on the page he's drawing a specific comparison. Like he's saying, I'm so much better than Jeter because I've hit third and, you know, I'm, I hit for power. Whereas when you hear what he says, to me, it sounds much more like he's musing on their different circumstances in response to a specific question as opposed to attacking Jeter. He's not really thinking through how insulting what the substance of what he's saying is. He's just, again, defensive about making so much money. And it really is important to consider the context of Alex's comments because his career had differed from Jeter. Like Jeter, Rodriguez had come up as a young kid in a lineup loaded with talent. But whereas Derek and his supporting cast built a dynasty, Alex had watched most of his best teammates disappear. 
Jeter played with an all-star center fielder in Bernie Williams, and the Yankees gave Williams a huge $87 million extension. A-Rod played with an all-star center fielder in Ken Griffey Jr., and Jr. asked his way to Cincinnati. The Yankees brought in a Cy Young winning pitcher who looked bound for the Hall of Fame when they traded for Roger Clemens. Yeah, it did look that way, huh? (laughs) Yeah, he looked bound for the Hall of Fame, but, you know, things would happen. Uh, But the Mariners had their own Cy Young winning future Hall of Famer in Randy Johnson, but they traded him away to Houston. So while the Yankees kept getting better as Jeter improved because his team was willing to pay a supporting cast, the Mariners were just treading water and asking Alex to replace more and more all-stars who disappeared. And he did. The 2000 season, when Rodriguez was unquestionably the focal point of the Seattle lineup, was his best year yet. He led the Mariners to the most wins in franchise history, and yet the team still fell short in the postseason to Jeter and the Yankees. So maybe he did have Derek Envy. Or maybe he was just jealous of the situation that Jeter found himself in, with the team willing to pay for supporting talent. Look, I love A-Rod apologism as much as anyone, but uh, we should likely move on. Uh, After all, he did take it a a bit too far. This was really classic A-Rod. He couldn't help but see things through the lens of individual comparisons, and it made him come off like a petty asshole. For one, saying that pitchers weren't afraid of Derek Jeter just a few months after Jeter had won World Series MVP on the strength of a series against the Mets when he hit 409 with two home runs, two doubles, and a triple in five games just came off as stupid. And to give those quotes in rapid succession made him seem obsessed with Jeter. And for Jeter's part, that was it with A-Rod. He was done. Whether he had possibly been open to forgiving Alex for the Dan Patrick comments, this was too much, and just made clear to Derek that Alex wasn't a true friend. Alex apparently desperately tried to apologize, reaching out to Derek privately, and even convinced Scott Rabb to tell Jeter all the positive stuff he'd said that didn't make the article. Rabb apparently sent him a fax, but Jeter says he never got it. Those comments bothered me because, um, like I said, I'm very, very loyal. You know, as a friend, I'm loyal. And um, I just looked at it as I wouldn't have done it. So when that came out, I felt really bad about it. I saw the way it was playing out, the way that it was written. Uh, I absolutely said exactly what I said. Again, I think it was a a comment that uh, I stand behind today. Um, It was a complete tsunami. It's one of the greatest teams ever. And to say that you don't have to focus about just one player, I think it's totally fair. By the way, the same could be said about my team with the Seattle Mariners. I had Ken Griffey Jr., Edgar Martinez, Jay Buhner. If somebody said that about me, I would be like, no no shit. (laughs) Absolutely. You better not just worry about me. So immediately I called Derek and I said, hey, I'd love to go up to see you and talk to you. We sat on his couch. We spoke for about an hour or so. I apologized. I said, look, I feel you guys have a tsunami. It's a great team. That wasn't you know, said to to hurt you or penalize you or slight you in any way. I believed his apology. I really did. I thought he was very sincere in his apology. I said, hey, look, man, if someone asks you a question, you don't have to justify a contract. Now, I think if it was a standalone incident, hey, you move on, man, people make mistakes. But it's the second time it happened. You can say whatever you want about me as a player, that's fine. But then it goes back to the trust and the loyalty. This is how the guy feels. He's not a true friend, is how I felt. Because I wouldn't do it to a friend. Alex was genuinely upset. And then I said, you know, you think it might help? This is spring training. If the magazine, I'll write a fax, the magazine will send it. Started Dear Derek and, and it said, uh, you're understandably upset. 
want to make it clear that in the course of our conversation, Alex had a lot of positive things to say about you. It's not his fault that, you know, we used what we used. So the writer of the article, Scott Rob, said he sent you a fax to the Yankees. Did you ever see this fax? <laughs> I never saw a fax. He sent it to, like, my personal fax machine I have in my locker. <laughs> You gotta ask them that question, man. I don't recall. I don't remember getting a fax. Yeah, maybe I, I. I really can't remember. I mean, at that point, I mean, what is what is a fax gonna what gonna do? In addition to fertilizing a million stories over the coming years about the rift between Derek and Alex, this press tour helped solidify the backlash to the contract. The initial response from owners and GMs that it would be bad for baseball by destroying competitive balance never came to fruition. But the idea that accepting the money made A-Rod selfish and that having selfish players was bad for your team, that idea stuck. The contrast between Jeter and Rodriguez furthered the narrative that Steve Phillips, the Mets GM, had first planted during their negotiations with A-Rod. That signing a star like Rodriguez made it harder to win because it divided your clubhouse or made you too focused on a single star. Of course, there's a degree of truth to this, Unlike basketball, where getting an elite player like LeBron James or Kevin Durant will immediately make any team a playoff contender, or football, where an elite quarterback like Tom Brady can do the same, in baseball, you cannot build your team around a single player. Even the best pitchers only pitch once every five days. Even the best hitters only come up four or five times a game. That was what Alex had sort of been getting at when he said that Jeter had great players around him in New York. But, and this is important, so we should really say it clearly, Having better players makes a baseball team better. There is no way that signing a guy like Alex Rodriguez will make your baseball team worse. I think it's important to really reiterate this because this is still an idea that's out there that somehow having a player that is too good makes your team worse. I mean, we saw this just a couple of years ago when the Red Sox traded Mookie Betts because they thought it was better to have several pretty good players than one really good player. Um, and it's all just because owners don't want to pay really good players. Uh, this was true in 2000 with A-Rod, and it's true now with Mookie Betts. And maybe it's worth coming back to like what A-Rod was actually saying in that interview. Because he's saying, you know, like with the Yankees, they w- might not have one star, but they have guys like Jeter and Bernie and po- Paul O'Neill. And, you know, with the exception of Jeter, like that lineup didn't really have Hall of Famers. But those guys were very talented and, you know, deserved their own money and accolades. And, yeah, you know. and they were paid as such. I mean, Bernie got his, as aforementioned, $87 million contract. Jeter got his $189 million contract. They were big deals for Posada and Tino and eventually Giambi and stuff. And, you know, when they were willing to, 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 to pay players fairly, you're able to build a good team. This is not rocket science, but... But GMs always try to sort of uh, 12-dimensional chest their way into not paying players. Yeah. So anyway, so one player like A-Rod might not be enough to win, depending on the talent around him, but it will make the team better. Of course, when you start to make the kind of money Alex was now making, people will expect you to win no matter what, where you are or what the context is. And if the Texas Rangers had won, things might have been different. But they didn't. There's 
there's this idea that Alex only went to Texas because he didn't care about winning and they were willing to pay him the most money. And that shows he only cared about his salary, that he was willing to pay for a losing team. But that's really a myth. The truth is that the Texas Rangers in the late 90s had been pretty good, and for the first time ever, really. They won the AL West three times in four years and won a franchise record 95 games in 1999. When Alex was in Seattle and missing the playoffs, he was usually missing the playoffs to the Texas Rangers. It's true, they had gone backwards in 2000, falling all the way to 71 wins, but it was reasonable to think that that was an aberration. After all, they lost Juan Gonzalez, the key player that we mentioned back in episode one, a right-handed slugger who won two MVP awards in the 1990s, and their offense had fallen off. They went from second in the league in runs per game in 1999 to ninth in 2000. So it wasn't crazy to think that by adding A-Rod, who was an even better hitter than Gonzalez... Remember, 20-year-old A-Rod actually deserved the AL MVP award when Gonzalez won it in 96. Yeah, go back and listen to episode one if you missed that. Uh, And A-Rod played a more premium defensive position. So signing him meant their offense could rebound and they could return to their winning ways. A-Rod was joining a roster with Ivan Rodriguez, Ruben Sierra, Rafael Palmero, and Ken Caminiti. And the offense did rebound in 2001. Alex Rodriguez was as good as advertised, leading the league in home runs and total bases, and the Rangers' offense jumped back up to third in the American League. He turned 26 in July, and he's already hit 290 home runs. High fly ball hit deep into right center field, and Ichiro looks up. Hey, Rod has his 52nd. So Alex Rodriguez becomes one of only four men in Major League history to have 200 hits and 50 home runs. Ruth, Hack Wilson, Jimmy Fox, and add the name Alex Rodriguez. And Alex looking at that ball as it's thrown back out. And I think he'd like to have that baseball. Unfortunately, there's this other subtle part of baseball known as pitching. And Alex once again found himself in a great lineup that couldn't make up for an awful pitching staff. Texas was the worst pitching team in baseball in 2000 before Alex got there, and they were the worst pitching team again in 2001. As good as A-Rod was, he couldn't hit them out of the holes their pitching staff dug for them. So they won only 73 games in Alex's first season and finished in last place. Rodriguez had suffered disappointing seasons with the Mariners before, but they'd never finished in last. But this Rangers team was an unmitigated disaster almost immediately. Johnny Oates, former manager of the year, and great baseball name, Johnny Oates, Uh, He was fired just 28 games into the 2001 season, but then they were already 11 games out of first place, and they never got much closer than that. Because to top everything off, the team that Alex had just left, the Seattle Mariners, were now putting together a historic season without him. In 2000, the Mariners had lost Ken Griffey Jr. and had somehow gotten better. Now, after losing A-Rod, they got a lot better. The 2001 Mariners won 116 games, tied for the most ever in the regular season. Some of it was the improved pitching performances of Freddie Garcia and Jamie Moyer. Some of it was career years from Brett Boone and Mike Cameron and a bunch of other guys in that lineup. 36-year-old utility man Mark Mecklemore was worth three and a half wins that year, John. <laughs> you know, it was just a magical year in Seattle that in 2001. Uh, a lot of it was the magic of Ichiro, who was in his first year over from Japan, and I think had some... Some, there was something in the water with Ichiro. You know, I think a lot of people just caught the caught the right in the wave of him. I mean, he was so amazing when he, his, his first year um, and for years after that. But the first year was, was something special. 
But whatever the reason, it was hard not to miss the fact that the Mariners had ditched Alex Rodriguez and gotten a lot better, while the Rangers had added him and seemingly gotten worse. This reinforced the emerging narrative that spending a lot of money on big free agents like Rodriguez was bad for your team. As mentioned in our last episode, the salary boom of the 1990s started to slow almost immediately after A-Rod signed his deal. That was mostly due to macroeconomic trends, but it didn't help that the face of that boom was mired on a team that couldn't sniff the postseason. For three years in Texas, A-Rod put up ridiculous numbers. He led the league in home runs every year, averaging 52 per season. He led the league in RBIs twice, in total bases twice, in runs scored twice, and in slugging percentage once. In the three seasons he played, he missed one total game. And he did this all while playing elite defense at a premium defensive position. 0-2 offer. Swung on. Popped up. Shallow left. A-Rod chasing it out. Coming on. Mech A-Rod dives and he's got it. What a spectacular catch by shortstop Alex Rodriguez. An amazing play by A-Rod. Takes an extra base hit away from Russell Brannion. What a magnificent effort. But in all that time, the Rangers played exactly two games above 500. The team was never within 10 games of the division lead after May 30th. They finished in last place all three years. So Alex Rodriguez, potentially the biggest star in baseball, was toiling in relative obscurity. In 2001, his biggest moment came in the All-Star game when he moved over to third to allow his former idol, Cal Ripken Jr., to play one last All-Star game at shortstop. You can hear Joe Buck laud the move as it's happening as a classy, gentlemanly gesture. Alex Rodriguez thought of this. He grew up in Miami idolizing Cal Ripken Jr. And he thought this year should be the year that Cal Ripken Jr. should finish as an all-star and start this game as a shortstop, where he, as Kevin Kennedy said in the pregame, revolutionized the position of shortstop. Cal has no idea. And Alex Rodriguez said, you know what? I want Ripken to play short, and we'll see if Ripken is accepting. I think he just said to Roger Clemens, strike him out. Don't have him hit it up the middle. So a classy gesture from a classy, classy man. Alex Rodriguez, his idea, and Cal Ripken fought it. But Junior finally gave in when Joe Torre said, get over there. Later, some people would cite this as an example of Rodriguez's ego or him craving the spotlight since he had put Ripken on the spot without asking. Which only shows how far Rodriguez eventually fell that even something like this was perceived as selfish. But at the time, nobody held it against Alex. You'd think this moment was like this would be choreographed, right? That like this would have been all planned out ahead of time. But it's true, they really didn't tell Ripken ahead of time that it was Alex's idea and he mentioned it to Joe Torre before the the All-Star game. But uh, they they wanted to surprise Ripken, who did feel awkward about it and was worried that he would be embarrassed by moving to short. So people would later use that as evidence that A-Rod was trying to embarrass Ripken or somehow show Ripken up when he was really just trying to do a nice surprise for this his former idol. Yeah, but, I like it, but you know, it seems like the evidence points to it just being like a genuine 
kind of fandom thing that A-Rod wanted to do. And still, like, even watching it back now, like, it, it does come off a little phony. I, don't know. <laughs> I, I think even when A-Rod tries to do something nice, as we said in the first episode, this is his curse, is that even when he does a nice thing, it comes off as a little phony and a little forced. So in 2002, A-Rod had probably his best season in Texas, and there was a mini controversy over whether he could win the MVP award on such a bad team. It was pretty clear he was the best player in the league. He led the American League in war, as well as old-fashioned stats like home runs and RBIs. But Texas was so bad that he lost the award to Miguel Tejada. Then the next year, A-Rod was almost as good, and finally the voters just gave him the award, even though the Rangers still sucked. I want to take a little bit here and dwell on Miguel Tejada himself, who's something of a forgotten figure of the shortstop renaissance, and who I think makes for an interesting contrast to A-Rod. I mean, Tejada won the MVP in 2002, and they made a movie about his team, and he's not referred to once. Yeah, there's almost a sliding doors element here with A-Rod and Tejada, uh, whose families are both from the Dominican Republic. But Alex was born in New York City, and he grew up in Miami as we went over in Chapter 1. And so as such, he was subject to the amateur draft where he was represented by Scott Boris, became the number one pick, and eventually he was able to get a $1.3 million bonus on his very first contract. But meanwhile, Miguel Tejada grew up in poverty in the Dominican Republic. He spent his youth doing odd construction jobs just to survive. And as a baseball prospect, he came through one of the shady Dominican baseball academies run by Enrique Soto who himself is an unsavory figure who would eventually spend time in Dominican prison for assaulting teenage players he was trading. Willie Ibar actually accused Soto of stealing $430,000 of his signing bonus from the Dodgers. And we see here how, beyond just their different countries of birth, A-Rod and Tejada were both affected by two phenomena that intersect with the larger trends of Latin American immigration, and that's one class and two colorism. When Tejada did sign, his bonus was only $2,000, and he was immediately sent to Medford, Oregon, where he adjusted to life despite speaking no English. Tejada was short and scrawny and almost an afterthought as a prospect. Meanwhile, A-Rod was classically handsome with light skin and eyes. Tejada had dark skin and even once called himself an ugly baby. So some of the dynamics we're trying to highlight in, in this episode kind of cut two ways, You know, in 2002, A-Rod had an outstanding year, and it was dismissed as empty numbers on a bad team. That same year, Tejada played 162 games, did everything right, timed his career year with the A's magical winning streak run to the AL West title, and he got ignored because it was easy to to focus on Billy Bean and, and the way that the A's were run at that time. You know, part of why Tejada was celebrated in 2002, but forgotten in the movie they made 10 years later is that is that in the 2002 season was prior to Tejada's big free agency. And I think as we saw with A-Rod in our previous episodes, there's nothing baseball media or fans and owners and that the baseball community in general can rally around more than a player who is on his rookie contract and who is underpaid, right? Like they love a guy like that. They love a guy. But once you sign your free agent contract, once you start getting paid what you're worth, suddenly people start forgetting, you know, That was when Tejada got linked to steroids. That was when they brought up stuff about his age and and accused him of lying on his about his age on his birth certificate when he first signed his deal. And that was also why he gets kind of forgotten as part of that Oakland A's team. And uh, just the same way that Alex was beloved in Seattle. But by the time he went to Texas, he was viewed with 
some degree of suspicion. Tejada would eventually accrue 47.1 war over a 16-year career, during which he made over $90 million. So both players would end up pretty rich and successful, but their different paths are a reminder of how certain arbitrary factors, like skin color, language, and even where you happen to play youth baseball, maintain significant power. But back to our hero. By 2003, I think people almost felt bad for A-Rod. By then, it was getting harder and harder to blame him for his team's performance, and I think fans were mostly just bummed that a player so good was languishing on a team so bad. Even the argument that signing A-Rod would hamstring the team financially wasn't panning out. The Rangers continued to invest in other free agents, they just didn't invest it wisely. They spent $24 million bringing back an older Juan Gonzalez, who couldn't stay healthy or recapture his old offensive prowess. And they gave $65 million to Chanho Park in a misguided attempt to stabilize their pitching. I want to make a brief aside about Chanho Park, because I think he's, uh, I think the reason he failed in Texas is related to how some people misperceive Rodriguez's time with the Rangers. Because one thing that was not nearly as well understood then as it is now is park effects, which is the effect that the ballpark you play in has on your performance. In 2000 and 2001, Chan Ho Park had been a very good pitcher. He averaged 230 innings a year to a sub 3.5 ERA. He won 18 games in 2000, 15 in 2001. But he played the bulk of his games in Dodger Stadium, which is a very pitcher-friendly ballpark. Of course, everybody knew that even at the time, but the magnitude of that effect was not well understood because Park's home road splits were particularly extreme. His ERA on the road was two runs worse than it was at home. So when he went to Texas, which is an extreme hitter-friendly ballpark, he was terrible. His road ERA stayed basically the same, but his home ERA was awful. It was 6.84 in his first year in the ballpark in Arlington, which was four runs higher than it had been in Dodger Stadium. So overall, his numbers were terrible, and the Rangers' pitching staff still was bad. But the ballpark effects cut both ways. They applied to hitters, too. A-Rod's home run total spiked in Texas, and when he later admitted to using steroids those years, it was taken as proof of the effect of those steroids, right? His his home run numbers went up. But his home run numbers went up because he was playing in a hitter-friendly park. It does not prove that steroids did what people say they did. That's going to come up later when we talk more about steroids, but I think it's important to, to, to put a pin in that right now. And anyway, whatever the reason, Park did not fix the strange roster the Rangers had constructed. In the course of Rodriguez's time in Texas, his team was an odd mix of veterans like Palmero, Pudge Rodriguez, and Kenny Rogers, along with young guys like Michael Young, Hank Blaylock, and Mark Teixeira. A-Rod was neither. At 25 when he first signed, he was younger than the team's obvious leaders like Palmero and Pudge. But he was in his prime years, basically. He wasn't a young upstart like Young and Blaylock, and he was obviously paid way more than anyone else. Perhaps as a result, there were reports of Rodriguez being somewhat aloof from his teammates. He traveled on his own plane and stayed in his own private hotel suite on the road. Such behavior was not unusual for baseball superstars, but it obviously engendered some resentment. Rodriguez also had a personal relationship with Tom Hicks, the owner who had courted him back in 2000, and Hicks was said to consult him on personnel moves. In 2002, when A-Rod got married, the wedding rehearsal dinner even took place at Hicks's house. And not every player had such a nice relationship with the owners around that time. In 2002, baseball seemed to be heading for yet another work stoppage. 
Ownership was not happy about the salary explosion we detailed in the last episode, and so they started pushing two major changes to the league as the collective bargaining agreement was about to expire. First, they wanted to instate a luxury tax. Baseball had actually tried a luxury tax in the late 1990s, but it was relative. It was a consistent rate that applied to all the top five spending teams related to how much they outspent everybody else. And it expired before the 2000 season without having much effect. But now the owners wanted a tax that would kick in at a set number, effectively functioning as a soft cap for the league. The stated goal was, of course, competitive balance. But you obviously wouldn't design a tax this way if your goal was competitive balance. Yeah, I mean, we can see this very clearly in the ways that this differs from the NFL and the NBA's caps, which, you know, I mean, the NBA, I think, importantly, kind of sets a minimum threshold as well. Right. There's there's when you impose a cap without imposing any kind of either floor or somehow rule about what the labor's share of the revenue is going to be as the as the other sports do all you're doing is saying hey if you spend above this money this or this this number you're going to pay a fine which is just a deterrent for all teams to not spend above that number it doesn't raise the competitiveness of the league it just keeps the salaries down um the real goal was salary suppression um owners were tired of the kinds of mega deals that alex rodriguez had become the face of The other thing the owners were pushing was contraction. They wanted to eliminate two teams from the league, which would have been devastating for players, both by shrinking the number of total jobs and eliminating potential suitors for them in free agency. In order to fight the contraction threat, the union agreed to the luxury tax, and the deal was reached just hours before the deadline, avoiding any cancellation of games, which was a major victory for the league, which was only a few years removed from the strike that had killed the World Series in 1994. It represents for the first time in baseball history that we have reached a collective bargaining agreement without the loss of a single game. The baseball owners got virtually everything they wanted structurally out of the labor settlement that prevented the strike. But clearly it was the players who got the financial terms that hang from that new structural skeleton. The owners wanted a luxury tax that kicked in on payrolls of more than $102 million. Instead, they settled for $117 million. They wanted the tax to be 50%. It starts at 20%. They wanted the tax to affect six teams. They settled for three or four. And to get this, they had to raise the minimum salary to $300,000 a year and to put off for at least four seasons Bud Selig's dream of eliminating two franchises. The union thus saved about 60 jobs for at least four years. There was one other aspect of the 2002 collective bargaining agreement, which was generally seen as a minor issue at the time, but eventually became a huge deal, especially as it relates to our hero, Alex Rodriguez. In 2002, the issue of steroids in baseball was just starting to bubble into a mainstream scandal thanks to a Sports Illustrated cover story that appeared that summer. So the union and the owners felt obligated to do something about it, even if neither side was eager to plumb the depths of the issue. Man, Ken Caminiti is really factoring into this series more than I thought. <laughs> He's really, yeah, the like best supporting actor of this series. <laughs> the deal they reached, which at the time was seen as little more than a fig leaf to those concerned about the issue, was that there would be a round of survey testing in 2003. They would randomly test players, but the results would supposedly, supposedly be anonymous. <laughs> if, if a certain percentage of the anonymous tests were positive, then that would trigger a more serious enforcement regime. Spoiler alert, these tests did not stay anonymous. 
We're going to do a deeper dive into A-Rod and the steroid era in a future episode, so if it seems like we've been gliding past some of the details so far, that's part of the reason why. But this round of survey testing would obviously have a massive impact on Rodriguez's career, since it was a leaked test of his from the 2003 season that served as a smoking gun linking him to steroids. But that wouldn't become public until much later. At the time, the biggest impact on Rodriguez would be the luxury tax. In its first year, the only teams over the tax threshold were the Yankees, Dodgers, and the Texas Rangers. Not coincidentally, around this time, the Rangers owner Tom Hicks announced that he was done with his big spending ways. I'm not doing it anymore. We're going to play within our means from now on. At least break even. Breaking even is at least a start and has got to happen. I would also want us to say this is not this has nothing to do with A-Rod, but I want to tell every Mets fan who loves Steve Cohen and thinks Steve Cohen is like God's gift to the franchise that you're about three months away from Steve Cohen talking about how the team has to break even. So just telling you that right now, get ready for those quotes about how the team needs to break even and he has to stop. He's not, he's going to stop spending money on free agents. Cause that's, this is, the, this is the pattern, right? They come in, they spend a lot of money, they get real excited. And then all of a sudden they start talking about breaking even. So I just want all the Mets fans listening to, to just prepare yourselves for that. To what extent, John, do you think contraction was ever seriously considered? Because it seems like, to me, this Hicks quote reads as like a like a phantom allusion to the contraction threat, which, looking back 20 years in the future, with hindsight, seems crazy, because nothing like, like that has ever happened. In it is, yeah, it does seem crazy in hindsight, when now every league is expanding, like the idea of contracting a professional league seems insane. But I remember at the time that people did take it seriously. I mean, there were proposals that I think it was the Twins and the Expos, I guess, were going to be contracted. And like there were like rallying cries in those cities. I mean, again, like it might it probably was just a negotiating tactic, um, but people took it seriously. And there were real threats to those teams that they would be completely eliminated. And it's yeah, again, I think it's one of those things that seems crazier in retrospect than it seemed at the time. Uh, Hicks fired manager Jerry Naren at the end of the season and brought in Buck Showalter. Naren was a pretty chill guy who got along well with A-Rod and the other veterans and indulged some of Alex's star habits, like his entourage in the locker room. Buck Showalter was not a chill guy. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's a chill guy. He's, he's just a different kind of chill. Everyone loves Buck. He's he's beloved. Turn the page. Celebrate tonight. Turn the page and uh, focus on on tomorrow. Buck. Buck. Yeah, Buck left. <laughs> she loves Buck. Well, in any case, Buck is a different kind of manager. Known at that point for orchestrating turnarounds of the Yankees in the early '90s and the Diamondbacks in the late '90s, both teams who won the World Series the year after he left. He was an old school manager who helped develop young players. There wasn't exactly tension between Buck and Rodriguez, but it was more a sign that Rodriguez didn't quite fit in the team's plans anymore. They were going into rebuild mode, letting veterans like Yvonne Rodriguez leave and trying to develop young players like Hank Blaylock, Teixeira, and Colby Lewis. And Alex started to bristle at those changes. In July of 2003, he told John Saracino of of USA Today that the team's poor performance was starting to affect his play. And he floated the possibility of leaving Texas. I'm hoping with all my heart that we turn this around, he said. But at some point, if we don't turn it around, I'll definitely be having a conversation with our owner. If he feels he has a better chance of winning without me, then I'd discuss it. He backtracked a little a few days later, insisting that he was talking about two or three years down the road, but clearly he was tired of finishing in last place. And then that fall, this happened. Rivera has pitched brilliantly 
Now we're tied at five as we go to the bottom of the 11th. Here's Aaron Boone to lead off. His first at-bat of the game. There's a fly ball deep to left. It's on its way. There it goes. And the Yankees are going to the World Series. Aaron Boone has hit a home run. The Yankees go to the World Series for the 39th time in their remarkable history. Aaron Boone down the left field line. They are waiting for him at home plate. And now he dives into the scrum. The Yankees win it 6-5. to five. Ball game over. American League Championship Series over. Yankees win. The Yankees win. I've always wanted to do that. How about Aaron Boone? Charlie, how beleaguered could a player be? And on his first swing of the night, he hits a home run deep in the left field seats. The Yankees who were down and out. They were down 5-2, going to the bottom of the eighth. One out, no one on. Get a walk-off first ball, home run off the bat of Aaron Boone, and the Yankees win an 11-6-5. As the story goes, at least as it's reported by Buster Olney, Alex was watching Game 7 of the American League Championship Series, and right after Aaron Boone's walk-off home run to send the Yankees to the World Series, he turned to his wife and said, I want to be a part of this rivalry. Again, it's always worth remembering that have how, how much of a baseball fan A-Rod really is. I mean, how many players were probably watching that game in the moment, <laughs> like who weren't actively playing in it? Uh, and within days, Texas's general manager was on the phone with both the Yankees and the Red Sox trying to work out a deal with one of those teams. But it wasn't a natural fit since both of them already had elite shortstops. As you remember from our discussion of the shortstop renaissance earlier in this episode and then more detail in episode two, uh, the top three shortstops in the league were Alex Rodriguez, Derek Jeter of the Yankees, and Nomar Garciaparra of the Red Sox. Again, maybe Tejada we can throw in there. But the Yankees had already signed Jeter to a long extension, so they told the Rangers they weren't interested in A-Rod. The Red Sox, on the other hand, were willing to move on from Garciaparra. His offense has dec- had decreased slightly since a wrist injury in 2001, and he was coming off a terrible postseason where he only got two extra base hits and 49 at-bats. But these were secondary concerns. The real reason the Red Sox were willing to trade him was that the sides had been unable to reach a deal on a long-term contract. They had supposedly agreed on a four-year, $60 million extension, which was a bargain compared to what Jeter and A-Rod had signed for. But Boston backed out when Nomar asked for an $8 million signing bonus. The team also had their own contract they wanted to get out of, an eight-year, $160 million deal with Manny Ramirez, which had been signed just a day after Alex had signed his deal with Texas. Ramirez is one of the few hitters in baseball who was actually better than Alex Rodriguez, but he was an indifferent fielder, over 30 years old, and kind of a head case. So the Red Sox and Rangers started to work out a deal to swap these contracts. Ramirez would go to Texas, and A-Rod would go to Boston. The Red Sox then worked out a contingent deal to send Nomar to Chicago for Maglio Ardonias. It's probably worth commenting on the fact that uh, we're talking about two of the, I don't know, seven or eight most talented right-handed hitters of all time in Manny and A-Rod. And uh, in their primes, they were seen as nuisances to their team. And both were kept out of the Hall of Fame for steroid allegations. Spoiler alert, we're going to get to that later. But but anyway, there's a good 30 for 30 short on this deal that never happened. Now playing shortstop for the Boston Red Sox, Alex Rodriguez. He would come to Boston rival Ted Williams in popularity, and wear a Red Sox cap into Cooperstown. My hope in Boston that wouldn't get him, but uh, 
and we watched it play out. I take major responsibility, both on and off the field, to be uh, the very best player and the very best person I can be. No one really can dispute that who knows you. But it's worth saying that this whole thing never really made sense. For one, the Red Sox were planning to trade Nomar and Manny for A-Rod and Maglio Ordonez. John, I think this makes them a better team just because I think having A-Rod on your team makes you a better team, but it's close, right? I mean, what do you think? I Yeah, I, to me, it seems really like a wash because it's like, you know, I think it's tricky because it's how do you factor in the fact that we know Nomar never really had a great season again after this, right? We have the benefit of hindsight, but they didn't know that. And at the time, going from... Nomar to Arod was certainly an upgrade, but going from Manny Ramirez to Maglio Ordonez was probably a, a downgrade of the equivalent amount. So to me, you kind of just come off as the same. And so you're really just talking about, you know, budgetary reasons, like who's, who's saving money. It's not, it doesn't make you on, ba- on just baseball terms. I'm not sure if you offered me Arod and Maglio Ordonez, and then on the other hand, Manny Ramirez and Nomar Garcia Parra in their primes, I don't know if I would definitely take A-Rod and Maglio. Yeah. And another key point, you can't have a trade where both sides are trying to dump salary. The math doesn't work. Most of the financial benefits Texas would get out of trading A-Rod would have ended up going to Manny Ramirez, who still had five years and $100 million left on his contract. And Boston would have ended up increasing its payroll, since Alex made even more than Manny. In an attempt to balance this unworkable math problem, the Red Sox asked Alex to do the unthinkable. Give the money back. You're going to give the money back. It was more or less unprecedented, but Rodriguez was so desperate to get out of the situation in Texas that he agreed to it. At the time, he was owed $179 million on his contract, and he offered to give back between 28 and $30 million of that, basically a sixth of the value on the deal. It was more than a full year's salary that he was offering to give back, but that was how badly he wanted to play for a winning team. I mean, remember, this is the deal that he went on that disastrous press tour to justify. And he was serious. He signed a contract agreeing to these terms. But after the deal was signed, the union killed it. Technically, Alex couldn't just give the money back. According to the collective bargaining agreement, he had to get something of value in exchange for the concession. So the Red Sox offered to sell him the rights to his own likeness. But this was really just a formality. They were asking for a pay cut. And the MLB Players Association decided that the size of the pay cut was not worth what he was getting. It's important to me to say that the union was correct in not wanting to set this precedent. Yeah, I think it's really guaranteed contracts are the sacred cows of the collective bargaining agreement. The idea that teams could start clawing money back, easy to see that this would have opened a Pandora's box to any time a free agent was disappointing. Teams would ask, hey, why don't you give some money back so we can pay another player, we can trade you, etc.? And this is not even the last time in Alex Rodriguez's career that an ownership group would try to demonize him to get out of paying him. Oh, yeah, this is going to come. This is going to be one of the recurring themes of the A-Rod Chronicles. Um, but the idea that a player is entitled to the compensation in his contract, no matter what second thoughts a team might have, is crucial to preserving the player's share of baseball's revenues. But it's worth saying that they weren't rigid about this. They did make a counteroffer. They valued the likeness rights of Alex Rodriguez at around $13 million. And they said... A-Rod's contract could be reduced by that much. It was Boston that found the number unacceptable, and they're the ones who walked away from the deal. The whole process dragged out in public for months. The Rangers first made inquiries about trading Alec right after the World Series ended in October, and the trade to Boston wasn't killed until late December, engendering months of speculation and frenzy. 
You even had the Red Sox first baseman, Kevin Millar, publicly pulling for the trade, even though Nomar and Manny were still technically his teammates. So you can have Alex Rodriguez or you can have Manny and Nomar. We'll take A-Rod. I put my head in my hand like this is this is a mess. In Texas, things were even more awkward. It was clear Alex didn't want to be there, and the team didn't really want him there, but it seemed like they were stuck with each other. To try to alleviate the awkwardness, the Rangers held a press conference in January of 2004 to name Alex the team captain. I definitely think I'm going to be here for a long time, Rodriguez said. I'm probably pretty sure it will work out for the best. You just got to love the confidence of, I'm probably pretty sure. Then Aaron Boone, the guy who had ended the Red Sox season the year before with his walk-off home run in Game 7 of the ALCS, did something perhaps even more impactful. He tore his ACL playing pickup basketball. This meant he would miss all of the 2004 season. It also gave the Yankees an opportunity to void his contract, since he wasn't allowed to play basketball for this exact reason. But now the Yankees had no third baseman. Apologies to Enrique Wilson. And the Yankees were much more sensible trade partners for the Rangers than the Red Sox had been. They did not have the same qualms about big contracts that Boston had, so they were willing to give up a player under team control in Alfonso Soriano, as well as a prospect who could have been Robinson Cano, but turned out to be the less good Joaquin Arias. In return, Texas picked up $62 million of the $179 million left on Arod's contract. This way, the Rangers shed $117 million of payroll and picked up two valuable young players at the same time. The only potential hurdle was whether Alex would move to third. But again, Arod was desperate to play for a winning team. Just as he agreed to give up salary to go to Boston, he gave up his position to go to New York. There's an anecdote in uh, the Captain documentary that we've mentioned earlier, uh, where Brian Cashman talks about sitting next to A-Rod at the BBWAAA awards dinner, um, where A-Rod was given the MVP award, and I guess Cashman won executive of the year, um, and they're kind of making small talk, and Cashman says something like, it's a shame that you're not willing to go to, it's a shame that you're not willing to play third base. And then, you know, once he's a little liquored up, A-Rod comes back and says, who said I wouldn't play third? I don't know if that show, that story is factual, but uh, it's, you know, interesting nonetheless. But in any case, it's worth dwelling on the sacrifice A-Rod was willing to make because This move really ought to undermine the idea that Alex cared more about himself than winning. He did two things that were almost unheard of in baseball and pretty unusual throughout the world of pro sports. He offered to give money back, and he offered to move from a position he was the best in the league at, all for the sake of winning. And yet, for some reason, this didn't really make a dent in A-Rod's reputation. Athletes are supposed to sacrifice in order to win, and here was Alex offering two very substantial sacrifices, and yet it did not help his perception of someone who put his own interests ahead of the team's. Which ought to tell you something about this reputation. It was grounded less in reality than in the resentment of people who had reasons to resent his massive contract. In Ian O'Connor's 2009 biography of Derek Jeter, which is full of swipes at A-Rod, He says this move by Rodriguez was because he was desperate to avoid finishing his career without a parade to call his own. When Derek Jeter wants to win, it's because he's a natural winner. When Alex Rodriguez wants to win, it's because he loves parades too much. Yeah, there's just this real weird double standard that was cemented, I think, the moment A-Rod signed his contract, that nothing he would do after that would be be seen as as pure, right? Everything else is somehow... uh, 
you know, manipulative or self-involved or, you know, so even when he tries to win, it's not team oriented. It's because he wants a parade or he wants a ring or he wants selfishly to, to come out ahead. And some of the, the resentment of him was definitely a reaction to the super team phenomenon, right? The Yankees had already been to the World Series in six of the last eight seasons. And now they were adding the best player in the world. Not to mention that they were doing so by wielding their vast financial resources and just saying, hey, we'll take another $100 million of payroll. The previous season, The Onion had run their infamous headline, Yankees ensure 2003 pennant by signing every player in baseball, which included a joke about Alex Rodriguez being the final player to be signed by the omnivorous Yankees. And now, less than a year later, it was basically coming true. The Yankees had just bested Boston in an epic American League championship series, and now they had bested Boston in their pursuit of Alex Rodriguez. It seemed like the team was unstoppable and was destined for another run of championships. And it seemed like Alex was ready to take his rightful place atop the game. But it didn't really work out like that. So chapter three brings us to the end of the Texas Ranger years. So we're at the end of 2003 now. By this point, Alex Rodriguez had hit 345 Major League home runs and accrued 63.6 wins above replacement, according to Baseball Reference. That's already a Hall of Fame career. I know. But the most staggering statistic associated with A-Rod's career thus far is the $79.5 million in gross income he had earned by the time he was 28 years old. The A-Rod Chronicles is an undrafted production brought to you by us, the Lefty Specialists, written, edited, and produced by the Lefty Specialists. Music composed by Lonnie Ginsberg. Until next week. (laughs) 